Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. I'm glad we're all here today. Just want to draw your attention to a little handout, little table out front there. Work is worship. Uh, we're going to be doing a school of ministry. I'd highly encourage you on your way out today to talk to Lana at the table. Uh, if you work, this is for you. So uh, uh, please take some time and, and see what we will be doing in a school ministry in March. Put your thinking caps on. Our title obviously is Theology of Sex. I have to be careful how fast I use the word theology because there is no word for that in American Sign Language. It's a sentence. <laughs> so, so our interpreter doesn't break a knuckle. I may slow down. <laughs> You need to follow rational thought, okay? This is gonna, um, well, let's go this way. When I say the word theology, what comes to mind? You know, do you picture Christian scholars sitting in their ivory towers of seminaries and Bible college far removed from the ordinary lives, telling us what Scripture is supposed to be? What comes to mind? So today is the first part of our series, and what I want to do is I actually want to lay out a foundation for the upcoming weeks. Um, and I need to acknowledge this very first and foremost, that we are living in a rapidly changing period of history. And the church in North America, as we see it, is facing major uh, challenges. And as the culture changes, there's this pressure now falling upon the church. And this moment in history has forced the church now to rethink how it can communicate this ageless and unchanging message of Jesus to these new emerging generations that are coming up in a language that they can understand. And Christians understand that the message of Jesus brings some sort of, of change in a person's life. That's what it's all about. Scripture uses the word transformation. And we have all these theological concepts that go along with that, like repentance and conversion and sanctification. They're all rooted in this reality that God changes people. And once a person encounters Jesus, now understand that in this room, I don't expect that everybody here uh, professes to be a believer. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would hope not that everybody here professes to be a believer. I, but I, I am talking to believers, but I'm also talking to those who don't believe that are here because of the curiosity. What's the church's stand? So once a person encounters Jesus, change is inevitable. And it's experience, as the Bible tells us, of putting off the old self and putting on the new. It's an experience of no longer being conformed to the pattern of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so then, how do we now build a bridge between the biblical world and today's world? Especially as uh, as believers if we look to follow Jesus. Because as Christians, we want to be able to bring the Bible into our lives. Because we read these fascinating stories, like guys like Noah, or we read the story of Jesus walking on the water, and we have to ask the question, how does this relate to our daily life? And it's a question, actually, that the church has been asking for centuries. It's nothing new. And this is a, the Bible is this historical document with contemporary relevance. But we're also aware that it doesn't speak to many situations that we face on a day-to-day -day basis. There is no biblical worldview for a nuclear war. You won't find it in Revelation. All right? There is no view for that. They, that kind of destruction was unknown to the ancient world. There is no view for epidemics such as AIDS because that kind of disease was unknown to the ancient world. The story of Noah is probably the closest that we get to describing climate change, but it you know, doesn't really have to do with anything of global warming today. 
So now enters theology. Now the word theology comes from two words, theos and logos. God and word. And simply stated, theology is words that express thoughts about God and the study of the belief in practice. All right? Words that express thoughts about God and the study of belief and practice. So we believe God is love. We understand as Christians that Jesus died for our sins, that we have a hope that transcends the grave, that transcends death because of the resurrection of Jesus. We walk through Matthew. We're going to be going into Easter. We have that hope. But those are also theological statements. So where do we get our theology from? If you grew up in a Christian community, you received it through your parents. You received it through your church leaders. You actually received it, some of it through your own personal scripture reading if you ever attempted to discover how biblically based beliefs relate to our lives. We do theology, especially when we take scripture and we look to, to work out what is God saying about the issues of today. If you're involved in a life group that's centered around a book of the Bible, you are doing theology. You're doing theology together. You're doing it to the best of your ability. You're trying to take the scripture and live it out. Food is a theological topic. I love food. I do. We can think about buying food, our need for food, those without food. We can talk about selling food. But then we ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about food? Actually, it says a lot. And to ask that question now means that we have to start thinking theologically about food. When we work through the scripture and, and apply its perspectives and teachings to all these different issues, we're thinking theologically. And so this is theology, and every Christian is a theologian to some degree. Some good, some bad. But to some degree, we're a theologian. Because as believers, we believe that the Bible and the message of Jesus is now relevant not only to our inner life, but also to the world around us in which we find ourselves. But here's the dirty little secret. In North America, Christians don't know their Bible really well. Do I get an amen? Amen! Right? I would dare say that most would keep their Bible reading to five minutes a month, and we focus on just the verses we like. Oh, crickets. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Am I being opinionated? Right here I am. So the rest of the biblical landscape remains a vast, unexplored territory to the average North American Christian. We don't know our Bibles. We don't. We don't. We become Google theologians. And that is so dangerous. Right, doctors? How many doctors in our midst love it when your patients come and they have already looked it up on Google? Do I get an amen, doctors? There we go. You see what I'm saying, people? And because of this lack of biblical understanding, Christians sense that they're not well prepared to have conversations about sexuality-related issues. They're afraid that they won't have answers to the hard questions or that might be put to them or asked to them by society. They're afraid that they won't be able to back up their positions biblically, even if they're pretty sure I'm right. And they might get backed into a corner and made a, make a mistake, and they're afraid that they're going to look foolish. Another kind of lack of biblical understanding comes from some Christians who know the Bible and they know the Bible inside and out, but their lack of understanding it does not come from how to. Uh, um, sorry, their lack of understanding comes not from the absence of knowledge, but from not knowing how to use their knowledge. And unfortunately, some Christians use the Bible as a weapon to bludgeon people who they disagree with. And this, too, is a lack of biblical understanding as it shows no love towards those who have different worldviews. 
Now, some folks need to realize that you can be right in your beliefs, but you can be wrong in the way that you communicate them. The gospel's offensive, not us. And so Jesus had two very simple commands. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You'll notice that there are no exception clauses there for neighbor. And as followers of Jesus, we actually have to learn how to treat people from all different backgrounds, different worldviews, with love that has no limits and with love that makes no compromises. And we have to love people just as Jesus does. And the more we as Christians engage the, sexually, the sexuality discussion in a gracious way, the more genuine relationships will come from it. And let's admit this. And over the next five weeks, this is going to get messy. Why? Because all people are messy. And messiness happens when you try to live out God's perfect grace as a flawed person in a flawed world. And yet God has a way of working through us when we keep on trying to share his grace regardless of how messy our situations get. And so throughout history, here comes the teaching. Philosophers, sociologists have been able to identify the major cultural transitions that have literally affected our global worldview, specifically in the Western culture. A worldview is the way that you and I look at the world. We all have lenses by which we look and view the world. All of us do. And it's like the glasses that, that we look through. And, and if you have rose-tinted glasses, you, you see your world of reality, but there's a tint of rose in it. And so a worldview tints all reality. Our worldview, the way that we live our life and view the world, impacts our values. It impacts the way we process information, how we draw conclusions. It also determines how we think about God, how we think about humanity, how we think about religion. Most scholars, most historians would agree that when a major worldview cultural shift takes place in history, there is a profound general change to society as a result of that. We are living in an age of experiencing major transitions in the way that we all view life, in the way that we all view religion, and more importantly, in the way that we all think about sexuality. So today's culture is constantly changing. And everyone, meets, uh, everyone we meet actually bears the marks of growing up in such a fast-paced, chaotic environment. The church in the past has been notorious for responding to the culture around it in two extreme ways. The first way is that the church can become what is called synchronistic in its approach to culture and the rest of society. A synchronistic church will live in the world and it will absorb the culture around it. It will allow the culture then to change the doctrine of the church. And a church that is synchronistic would, could be identified as liberal in its theology and that illustrates synchronism. That they have drifted away from the historic interpretation and application of the scripture and doctrine. On the other hand, there's this other group called sectarian. These sectarian types of churches um, respond to the culture around them in an extreme manner as well. And they separate themselves from the world to the extreme, to the point that they just have their own holy little huddle and they don't impact or associate with the culture around them. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for his disciples. And he prays, verse uh, 15 specifically, he says, now this is Jesus praying for his disciples. And when you read the context, he's also praying for you and me. He says, my prayer is that you don't take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And this is a verse that the church needs to live out. The church is like a boat that is placed in the ocean of culture. The church is to live as Jesus prayed, and then it must float <laughs> it has to actually both float in the culture, but also affect the culture that it floats in and not remove itself and go to the beaches. However, the church has to be very careful not to let the negative effects of culture fill the vessel or it's going to sink. When we take the time to analyze and to understand today's culture, we see that the world around us is not much 
It's not agnostic without God, per se, but rather it's agnostic. And what I'm saying is that these emerging generations that are now coming up are ignorant of the church. By ignorant, I mean not knowing. The, the emerging generation that is coming up in our culture is unchurched, and it's characterized by the fact that they have no religious heritage to fall upon. The reference of Christianity is, is from the starting point of ignorance, of, of not knowing what is this all about. The baby boomers, if you're a boomer here, yay boomer, um, you may be, the baby boomers rejected the church, but they still have a church influence that provokes past religious memories. The emerging generations are starting from ignorance. And so when wanting to minister to these up and coming generations, we can't presume any religious education on their part. And what little they know is actually distorted by culture. So the church today needs to change its assumptions with the way that we start ministry. And too often, the established church assumes that people know the Bible. Maybe you've heard worship leaders say this. Well, you know all, you all know where it says. And then, you, know, you all know where it, no, 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 we don't. I don't, because I don't know what you're quoting for crying out loud. Not that our worship leaders are saying that. I'm not saying that to our guys, all right? <laughs> But I've been in places like, you know all, no, no, we're, we're ignorant, we don't know. And so we take it for granted that they know the story. We take it for granted our culture knows the story. In today's culture, the church has to rethink how to share the gospel, this message of Jesus. These emerging generations have an uncanny openness to the unseen spiritual world, to the metaphysical uh, around them. The issue for them is not whether God exists. It is which God is God. The issue for them, and they're not asking, is God there? What they're asking is, is God real? What difference will he actually make in my life? Those are the quick questions people are asking. And so what they do is they look to the church. And the dialogue becomes a catchphrase in this whole process. And so that's why we're actually concluding this whole series at the end of five weeks with asking for a friend. Where you can, starting today, you start emailing in your questions if you want. And if by the end of the time I haven't answered anything, we'll answer it that Sunday night. Because we no longer live in an age where I can stand here and make a propositional true statement and expect people to understand that statement as either completely true or completely wrong. We live in an age where people want their views to be heard and accepted as genuine, even if they're contrary to Scripture. And people have, uh, are most apt to listening to someone express their personal faith in Jesus, provided that they're allowed to share their window or their worldview without any negative consequences and reactions. And it's actually very similar what has happened uh, with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. Paul's walking through Athens. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up. He walks around the city. He's observing the culture. Scripture says that he's greatly distressed by the city and all the idols that are in it. He then goes into the synagogues and the markets. He begins to talk to people. He begins to listen to people. He then gets an invite to the Areopagus, this big debating hall, and he has this debate with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers of the day. And uh, it's interesting. Paul uses examples from their own culture to introduce them to the one and only true God. And it's Paul's ability to listen and to learn about the culture around him that has created an opportunity to share his faith with the people of Athens. And the church has to do the same. So when we talk about worldview, we're not talking about generation gaps. When the phrase generation gap first appeared, it, it re makes reference to the difficulty in communication between adults and children. There's always going to be a difficulty communicating between kids and parents. And all the kids said, my parents are dumb, right? Yeah, I get it. And then we pray that you, your quiver is full and you get to experience it as well. And your kids call you dumb. But what we're experiencing in our culture is not a generation gap. 
Rather, it's a change, literally, on how people view the world. And there are a number of factors, and now this is where I need you to get thinking with me. There are a number of factors in our society that has actually brought us to where we are today. And it's the main worldview, and it's not like we go, oh, this is the worldview, and this is advertised and taught. No, but this is how philosophers, historians, theologians, sociologists would be able to articulate this, is that one of the main worldviews being held by our society today is called relativism. Relativism teaches this, and, and you guys, our young people, are going to go, oh, this makes sense. No, this, I don't know why you're talking about this, because you have been born in it, and you live in it. Old farts like me, it's a whole different story, okay? Um, relativism teaches that there is no right way to understand the world. There's no right way. There's no right story. All religions of the world are all different people's unique ways trying to understand the world, but there's no right, there's no true story. There's just different ways that people try to understand reality in the different ways of subjective interpretation. Everyone has their own road, and eventually all these roads lead to the same place. Secondly, making true statements. This is seen as a sign of power and oppression in our culture. You know, basically this view holds the idea that sin, there's nothing true. As a matter of fact, the only real sin is to believe in truth, right? And uh, we all know that <laughs> uh, there's nothing that is true, which is actually a true statement and flawed in itself. And, but people who hold this worldview say that really the only thing that is true is that there are rich people and poor people. There are the haves and the have-nots. And if you're into politics, you'll start knowing where I'm going with this. And all the truth statements are just people who are under a banner of truth are actually trying to suppress or to take power over those who don't have that. For instance, for example, I go to a tribe of indigenous people who have never heard of Jesus. And because I believe the gospel of Jesus is for everyone, and they need to have the opportunity to hear the gospel, and I go there and I preach to them and I tell them, hey, you need to get saved, you need to meet Jesus. There are those out there in our world right now who will say that is simply a form of oppression, and my truth statement is not applicable to their truth because there is no such thing as truth, and what I'm trying to do is actually take power over those people and oppress them for my own personal gain. Okay, so some of your heads are probably going, work with me. Because we have this statement in our culture, what is right for you may be wrong for me. And in some cases, that's true. I love meat. Maybe you don't, all right? All right, but this is not about food. This is not about personal preferences. There are things in life that literally apply to everyone. We all need to drink water. Try going three days without drinking fluids. We all need to drink water. If you have cancer, and if you don't do your best to treat, to treat it, you're going to die. We're going to die anyway. But, you know, again, if you get diagnosed, we've got to do our best to treat it. In the same way, Christians believe that the God of the universe has revealed himself. And God has said, this is how you get to know me. Jesus Christ is... The way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And that, for the Christian, is not an option. That's a fundamental truth-based statement. And this is what we believe as Christians, that there are actually certain moral and ethical things in Scripture that if we don't, as Christians, take them seriously, that we don't contend with them, that we don't confront them, that we don't deal with them in your life or my life, then our life is actually then headed for a pathway of destruction. The third thing is a sexual revolution. All you hippies, yay! The sexual revolution happened in the 60s and 70s. Here's your history lesson. It has affected our cultural worldview. The sexual revolution was a social upheaval of 1,500 years of Christian society in the Western perspective. See, the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s was more than just, you know, peace, free love, and smoke pot. 
It taught that the highest fulfillment in life was to find sexual fulfillment. And the way that you can be the most happy is when you have sex with whoever you uh, want and whenever you want. That was the sexual revolution. That is what life is really all about. You just find what sexually satisfies you and you go for it. And so the sexual revolution is the reason why divorce now becomes so cheap. Because the highest truth in our culture is the sexual experience, the erotic experience. For example, you might, you might have even been in this conversation. Honey, I'm not in love with you anymore. But we have children together and we made vows and promises to each other. Well, I'm not in love with you anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm in love with this person. We have sexual dynamism. And this is who I really am. But you said you loved me and we built this life and this marriage and we have these children. Yeah, well, I'm attracted to this person and we're having a sexual go, so now it's just time to move on. The sexual revolution had laid waste to the family and what it left behind in society was a devastated society with devastated children, devastated women, devastated men. And we're left with slogans that come out of that, like it's your body, it's your life, you do with it what you want. Have sex with whoever you want. And most importantly, the sexual revolution removed the stigma of having sex with whoever you want, mainly by introducing abortion on demand. Now, before the sexual revolution, sex was reserved for the confines of marriage. That was the ideal of culture at that time. Yeah, people fooled around and they had concubines and I get that. But this was what marriage was all about. And the reason why it was reserved was the inevitability of uh, this thing called procreation existed. So marriage in the culture before the sexual re revolution gave people a space to experience sexual intimacy and knowing that the result of a lot of sex, in case you didn't know this, the result of a lot of sex between men and women is going to be children. Just throwing it out there. And so the sexual revolution comes on the scene and what it does is it tries to scrub the consequences of sex outside of marriage by abortion on demand. Now, some of you are probably just spinning in your seats. Just, just work with me. And we have to understand that if we talk about the abortion issue, that there are going to be people on the other side of the abortion issue who don't think it's a problem. And maybe that's some of you here today. And they're not thinking about the children. They're not thinking about the unborn. They're thinking about sexual liberation. And that value, sexual liberation, if I can use this word, trumps everything. The value that people should be allowed to have sex with whoever they want is the ultimate value right now of our society. So many times we don't understand where people are coming from because we don't understand the revolution, sexual revolution and how important the rejection of marriage as the place to house sexuality and the fruit of it, which is kids, obviously, has become to our society. And so our society dislikes marriage. Our society hates and mocks monogamy. That means just one spouse for life. And it would confine people. And uh, I would say that our society detests any sort of morality or ethic like what the church has that would confine people to a boring heteronormative sexuality. If we don't understand that, then we're going to miss a number of things that are happening here. Now, the fourth thing is really interesting. It's an age-old heresy. It's called Gnosticism. And it's playing itself out again in our society. It's an ancient philosophy. It's made this comeback. Early Christians called this heresy. It was heresy. And what it essentially meant, a Gnostic teaches that there's this inherited dualism between there's our true self and then there's our bodies. 
One part of Gnosticism taught that the world was divided into two, two groups. So the one part of Gnosticism says there are people in the know, and then there are people who don't know. But we are the people in the know. And you see this. You see this advertised. There are people who have the secret. We have the secret for this. This is, in essence, is Gnosticism. There was a book out a little while back called The Secret. It was Gnosticism to the T. It was this separation of spirit and body. And so that's what Gnosticism is. There are these people who think they have this special access, this special knowledge, and those who don't. And secondly, they divide the world into two parts. Anything material is negative. Anything that is ethereal or spiritual is good. And it's not so much that these two worlds exist, but they exist in opposition to each other. So the material is against the spiritual. The body is against the soul. So how does this play out in our society? You know, what does, uh, what this does to a society is it sets it up to say that the true me, the true me inside, right? My spiritual me, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. And this is why spiritualism is so popular right now, because people in their heads, they actually make a separation between what they do with their physical body and their spirituality. This ideology makes it difficult actually for the church to disciple people because these people don't see a problem with coming to church on Sunday and living like the devil on Monday to Saturday. They live in a separation. They conclude in their minds that their body doesn't matter. So we can do whatever we want with the body and whatever we want sexually because sex and body, yeah, that doesn't really mean anything. I want to find my true self. But when we discount bodies and sex, it leads to reckless indulgence, to the erasing of boundaries. And we see this philosophy playing out in our hookup culture. In a culture that denies that bodies matter. Why? Because a hookup culture discourages authentic relationships. It tries to turn sex into a hobby or a low-value uh, biological need. And so there's this thinking that people don't see what they do with their body as important as, as, important as their spiritual self. My spiritual is really important, but I can, I can live my, my life any way I want. And the two don't meet together. Which is really contrary to Scripture. Add to that, there's this other ism in our culture. It's called individualism. It's the fruit of liberalism. And I'm not talking about a political party. I'm talking about a train of thought. The thought's this. The more that you can get away from family, the more that you can get away from tradition and responsibilities of society, the more that you're going to discover who you really are. The more you are out uh, from under society's expectations of you and your family's expectations of you, the more that you will be able to find your true self. Christianity doesn't teach that. See, Christianity teaches that if you, find, you actually find yourself in relationships and that you discover who you are as a gift from God and that spiritual maturity doesn't happen outside of the context of relationships. That's why we gather in big groups. That's why we gather in small groups. But according to individualism, the, the worst thing you can do is actually deny your true self. That, that means denying who you really are. You're denying your deepest desires. And yet Jesus says, deny yourself. And so people in our society, they, they'll say this. You know, this is who I am. These desires, this is who I am. These are my, my deep desires. I must fulfill them. And if I deny myself, then I'm going to have psychiatric problems and bad things are going to happen if I can't be who I really am. And so our culture says that truth then is relative for each person. That our body and soul are not one unit. That people are individual and they, they have to find and define what's good for them. And that people should be free sexually. And if they're sexually free, we're going to be completely happy. And that actually brings us to where we are today. So my brain's been mush for the last three weeks. Sex is a topic that matters. Not just to the world at large, but to the church. Why? Because it's personal. It's about our day-to-day -day lives. It's about our bodies. It's about what we want. 
and how we arrange our lives and how we relate to people. And the scriptures in both the Old and the New Testament speak to us about how our bodies are actually to honor God, our bodies. The Bible speaks frankly about sex and there's no doubt that sexual ethics are important to the Christian faith. But, but what if, what if much in the way Christians teach about sex has gone wrong? What if in our efforts to keep people from making a mistake, we've done a great deal of damage? What if sex is actually not all about a list of rules, a, a set of do's and don'ts? What if sex isn't most of all about us? What if sex is actually about God and who God is and about God's good intentions for his creation? May I suggest to you today that the way Christians do and don't have sex is about who God is and actually the good life that God wants for us. There's not enough time, even in the weeks that we're going, to address all I want to about sexuality. But there is room to place sex within the grand story of what God is up to in the world. And I, and I hope that putting sex into this story, the, the most important cosmic and personal story of all, will actually help us as the church to, to think what it means when we read food for the stomach and stomach for food. God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And what I hope is that it actually helps us to think how we can bear witness to the goodness of God through what I would call holy sexuality. See, we live in a world of virtual reality. We live in a world of fantasy. From all the doctored images from the, the fantasy worlds of social media to a gaming society that acts as if it doesn't actually need human touch. Uh, and portrays reality really in an unrealistic way, especially when it comes to sex. More of that next week. Way, way more about that next week. Let me first start off with the premise that all sex is real. See, much of what goes wrong, uh, wrong around the Christian understanding of sex has to do with our failure to actually connect sex with reality. Let me explain. Because we fail to see that the way we do and the way that we do not have sex has to do with God, who God really is, and who we really are. So when a theologian uses the word like real, they mean business. What is most real about God and whatever it means to be human has to do with who God is and with God's good intentions for us. It has to apply. Early church father Arrhenius talked about reality this way, and he insisted that humans were not put here on earth to fade away into nothing. This is because God made us, because God has plans for us, and we have a purpose. That's part of our mission here at Seoul. We understand that. He expected that we would continue to grow, to mature, to become more the human beings that God created us to be. The idea that sex is real actually is difficult for our culture to understand because in our culture, what is communicated to us, what is said to us, is that a lot of people have something, well, I should even say this, when they, a lot of people have something at stake in pretending that sex doesn't really matter. If we say sex doesn't really matter, there's something at stake there. If somebody comes across the other side and says, no, it does matter. It does matter what we do with our bodies. It does matter what we do with our minds. It does matter how I treat my brother. It does matter how I treat my sister. If we don't believe that sex matters, then we're pretending that something is at stake here. Imagine a child is taught something that's no big deal. When in reality, it actually matters deeply. For, for instance, let's, let's go back to food. That's my favorite. 
Dagu Rice Noodle House. Oh, I tell you, it's just off Pemina Highway. Absolutely fabulous. I was taken there. But we have an alliance church that is reaching out. They're using our facility on Sundays, Chinese Alliance. And they're reaching the Mandarin community around here. It's fabulous. And I went out with the pa- I just, okay, food. <laughs> day in and day out, right? We need it. If you're a parent, you feed your children. And, and maybe you feed your children the following lines, pardon the pun. It doesn't matter what you eat or don't eat. Eating has nothing to do with your health. Food is just for the body, and what really matters is your psychological health. Food's a private matter. If you have a taste for something, you should eat it, lots of it. Whenever, you know, whatever you eat in the privacy of your house is your decision, and it doesn't affect anybody else. I have a picture of somebody just eating ice cream. You know what? Nobody gets hurt in the production of your food. Nothing you can eat can hurt you. You might like broccoli, but that doesn't make it good for me. That's your personal preference. Now, your child's going to hear this and internalize all that. And so the child then believes, he or she will, what she hears, and decides to have a steady diet of gummy bears and fries. The child has no way to understand the relationship between their diet and their fact, and now that their body is not thriving because of their steady diet of gummy bears and fries. Yet you and I know that food has real effects on our lives, right? Both positive and very negative. But this child, in my example, lives in a world of lies. And in our culture, it's interesting how quickly we're willing to talk about how food matters in our culture, but have no tools concerning sex and re- to reality, and that sexuality matters in our culture. And the world we live in tells us lies about sex that are similar to the lies about food that I just mentioned. We're told that it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. Our world treats the body as something that is expendable. It's a mere means to a more important end. If we can be convinced that sex is not real, that sex doesn't have meaning, that our bodies don't matter, then we are actually vulnerable, when you think about it, to use and abuse. If our bodies don't mean anything, then we will act as though we can assign them meaning at random. We will act or others will want us to act as though our bodies free of real meaning, can simply just be used in a given moment for nothing but pleasure, nothing but power, nothing but selfishness. And we'll act as though our bodies can be disregarded and discounted. We will act as though bodies can be used as commodities bought and sold on the free market. But if sex is real, And if bodies matter, then we will be held accountable to something that is actually beyond ourselves. And we are accountable to reality, to truth, to goodness, and to beauty as believers. You know, the common Christian critique is, uh, why are Christians so hung up on sex anyway? You know, why do Christians act like sexual sin is something that should be taken seriously? Maybe that's your thought here today. You know, critics often dismiss Christian teaching about sexual behavior all the time. I often heard that we, you know, we claim that, you know, they'll claim that we're hung up on a bunch of rules that really don't matter, that are just, you know, put there by legalistic, uptight people who look down on others, who like to condemn what others are doing, who don't feel free in their own sexual uh, expression. I have to say, critics are right. That sexual ethics is not the only area that Christians ought to care about. But they're wrong to think that sex does not matter. Sex matters because it's real. It's not incidental. It's, it's, it's not something that we shake off as though it doesn't really touch the core of our existence. Like I said, the Bible is filled with references. Paul in 1 Corinthians names sexual sin four times in a list of ten types of sin. He takes sexual sin seriously because it's so intimate, so personal, so bodily. When he says all other sins a person commits outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body, he's drawing our attention to something. 
These are not words of a prude old man or somebody who has problems with bodies. These are the words of somebody who understands that our bodies are real and what happens in the body is intimate and very personal. And sex matters because embodiment goes to the very heart of what it means to be human. And so scripture teaches in many different ways that sex really matters. And the way Christians do and don't have sex is anchored in the deepest truth about reality and it witnesses to the reality of a God who loves and is faithful to his people. And more than that, a Christian sexual ethic reflects reality because they make sense of the kind of creatures God made us to be. And so those sexual ethics offer us a way as human beings to actually flourish. They point to a way to be in relationship with God and with each other that bears faithful witness to a God, a God who is what? Love of all things, who is all about truth, who is all about reality. And so some Christians have given up on sexual morality. They, they dismiss tradition as outdated. We have a revisionist theology now that's out there. Other believers accept traditional sexual ethics which is not having sex prior to or outside of marriage. And as a given and assume that there is such a good thing as good sexual behavior and bad sexual behavior. So whether sexual morality is rejected or is clung to as the norm, many Christians don't have much to say about why sex matters for the Christian life. Even when we accept classic Christian teaching about sex, we may is still have trouble accessing, or acting, I should say, on those beliefs. Most of us don't know how to explain the Christian teaching on sex to people who are not Christians. Sex matters to God because our bodies matter to God. Because God created our bodies. And he has good plans for us as embodied people because we are created in his image and likeness, male and female. The language, the imagery of sexuality is used in the Bible to describe the relationship between God and his people. We see that in numerous different places, both very positively when, when the children of Israel were faithful, but also negatively when they weren't. He would talk about marriage. He would talk about prostitution. It was part of the imagery. The, the idea of sex is written throughout all the pages of Scripture. And so from God's perspective, we have to look at it and say our bodies matter. The Christian faith is profoundly for the body and for the joys of bodily life. God, after, after all, created us. He created us both body and soul. And at that moment, he called it good. And furthermore, God is redeeming our, us, our body and soul, that we may bear his image, bear the image of the man of heaven to show the love of God to a world in need. Our bodies matter. And being for the body means that we, what we do with the body matters. And according to Paul, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be visible in our bodies. And the life of Jesus is supposed to be visible in our flesh. In other words, when people look at us, they should be seeing Jesus. People should, who see us should be able to see the gospel of Jesus literally acted out in flesh. And given this, it, shouldn't it surprise us that the life of the body includes things like eating and sex? Now, one of the most Christian things we can do is affirm the goodness of creation. And I hear it all the time, right? We affirm the goodness of creation. So the question we have to ask is, why do Christians recognize the whole world, the physical, including the bodies, and including sexuality as good? And the answer is theological, and it goes back to who God is. And so at the risk of messing this up, I'm going to keep it very brief. If you go to your Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, I have it on the screen. God created human beings in his own image. The image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I'll give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit and seed in it, they'll be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. 
And so it was. God saw that all he had made, and it was good. And that evening, there was morning, the sixth day. We now move to the second story of creation, the second story of the creation of humanity in Genesis chapter 2. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God said, It's not good for a man to be alone. I'll make a suitable helper for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought, it to, brought her to the man. The man said, wow. Now, this bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife. They will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. There's literally so much to say about these two passages, but one of the most important things is to know that God created this physical world, that he created us as physical beings, and that he declared it good. God creates us as physical beings. It is good. God creates us as gendered beings, and it is good. God creates us as sexual beings, and it is good. There's almost this thought that there was no sex in the Garden of Eden before the fall, but the command to be fruitful and multiply is a command that comes to Adam and Eve before they sin. So you got to think about it. It's pretty difficult to obey that command without sexual relations. They had sex. Sex isn't dirty. God created us as sexual beings. God created sex. He created sexuality. And it's part of all that he calls good. And so then what's the purpose of it? What's the purpose? Well, the first purpose of sex is protection and procreation. You know, Genesis 1.28. We're all wrong. Like, I would say that we are wrong to say that procreation is the only purpose of sex. But in sex, a husband and wife, they join uh, in the creative process that God is in the beginning of new life. It's a wonderful thing that actually God enables us to partner, when you think about it, in creation through physical love. Also, sex in the context of marriage provides protection. This is huge. This, this is the issue that's addressed in 1 Corinthians 7 too. It says, but since sexual immorality, which means sex outside of the bonds of marriage, is occurring, each man should have his uh, have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And one of the reasons for this design and context is the protection it affords us against the temptation of the sin of sexual immorality. In other words, stepping outside of the relationship. And secondly, sex is about intimacy and unity. For this reason, a man will leave his father and be united with wife. They'll become one. That, that, it's, that oneness, that intimacy is experienced physically. It's experienced emotionally. It's experienced spiritually. All of it together through sex. And so sex is a sign of unity between a man and a woman. It, it acts as a force that binds us together. Start reading the Songs of Solomon. My beloved to, is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breasts. Married couples, fabulous devotionals. <laughs> like an apple tree amongst the trees in the forest, so is my beloved among the young man. In his shade, I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. This is not about Jesus and the church, people. Songs of Solomon is a sex manual. Our culture. Okay, I got to say this, but, you know, and I know people are going to YouTube it anyway, but Vanilla Sky, the movie with Cameron Diaz and, and, and Tom Cruise. I remember watching it, and it's, it's a perverted, gross, disgusting movie. I, I'm just throwing it out there. I repent, okay? Um, We were watching, we, because I don't want to be alone in this. Uh, <laughs> I'm throwing my wife under the bus. I don't know where she's sitting, but she's under the bus now. Both tires. So Tom Cruise dump, dumps Cameron Diaz, and she's not going to let him go, and she basically stops, stalks him. And in a classic mind that almost, line that I almost fell out of my, uh, uh, off my couch, she said this. Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, and I love the way she says it, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? That was culture. 
She might as well have been quoting Paul who says, speaking of sexual sin, don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it's said that the two will become one flesh. And this is why there's no such thing as casual sex. While we might feel casual about sex and sex itself because of how it unites the beings of two people. But it's never casual. The third thing about sex is companionship. Again, Songs of Solomon. Let his left hand be under my, ha my head and his right hand embrace me. I'm telling you people, great devotions. Four or five, your two breasts are like two fawns. <laughs> Twins of a gazelle, which feed amongst the lilies. There's some great imagery here that I really don't understand. <laughs> but they were really off the charts, that's all I can tell you. The fourth thing, and it, comes all, it lines up with it, is pleasure. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And so God makes it very clear throughout all of Scripture that sexual intimacy is for our pleasure. You're not supposed to look at sex and feel dirty. And if you don't believe me, read your Bible, go to the Song of Solomon together with your spouse. That, that little love letter celebrates the intended joy that comes from sexual union. Even in Proverbs, Proverbs, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be always intoxicated in her love. And everybody said, Amen. You know, in the church, it's like we can't talk about sex. We can't talk about the goodness of what's in Scripture. I can talk about everything else, but hey, you're crossing the line. No, it's, it's blessed by God. We should be celebrating in this. God created pleasure. The devil didn't. The pleasure we, see, we, we receive uh, when we go out and and uh, you have some really good food, like at Dagu Rice Noodle House. Really good food. From seeing and smelling a rose, from going out and looking at the lake upon which you stand, or a beautiful mountain that stands before you. And sex, that comes from God. All of it comes from God. And that pleasure actually is sacred. And the Bible is obvious that the only place for sexual love is in the presence of committed love. This committed love is not just a decision we make. You know, I decided that this is the guy or the girl for me. Therefore, we can be joined together in sexual unity. It's, this is my commitment. No, 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 no. The committed love that opens the door for sexual love. The committed love that opens the door for sexual love is a vow. A vow that we make together before God and before others in this thing that he has instituted for thousands of years called marriage. A decision made in the heat of the moment that your girlfriend or your boyfriend is your life mate is actually not enough. And you need to seal that felt commitment with love with the enacted committed love of marriage vows. Those are the boundaries that God has placed upon it. And so when we look at it, sex is a wonderful blessing given to us by God that serves to express intimacy to another. You know, theologians believe that the sexual uh, union actually is sort of representative of the intimacy found in the Trinity, which is interesting. It's not to say that the, the members of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're, they're having sex. I'm not, that's absurd. But there's an incredible intimacy and communion between them. The three persons in the Godhead are, after all, one. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. And so when you think about it, then the, ex the expression of the, the physical union has a spiritual aspect to it. This is when two become one flesh. It's spiritual. And this is why theologians see sexual relationship as a sacred experience. When you make love, it's a sacred experience. Sacred means set apart. In the Old Testament, if the temple, uh, they had utensils that they used in the temple, if they were, and, and they were declared sacred, they were declared set apart. They were supposed to be used only in the temple 
when they worshiped God. And to use them outside of the temple would actually defile them. In the same way, to use sex outside the bonds of marriage is to defile it. And there are two main concepts for sexual sin in the Bible. One is adultery or infidelity, which means you're having sex with somebody uh, when you or they are married to somebody else. The other is translated as fornication, which is an old word, or sexual immorality. And that is a, a general word. It's the word pernia. I'll, I'll go further on it next week, but it's simple. It means sex outside the bonds of marriage. This is classical, historic, Christian doctrine. Sexual sin has been given a greater emphasis in the church down through the ages. And we, and, and we wonder why. Well, Paul even said to the Corinthians, he said, from, flee from sexual immorality. All sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? If you're a believer, you identify that. The Holy Spirit is in you. Who you receive from God. You're not your own. Notice what scripture says. This is scripture. You know, we can't be like Marcion, who was an early church heretic. Marcion would take the Bible, take the New Testament. He literally cut out pieces of the Bible that he didn't like. And then he had his own Bible. That's what we're doing now in our culture. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. In other words, bodies matter to God. Paul has a very high view of sexuality. That it's an act that is greater than it looks, without question, the way that he talks about it. He has a high view of our physical bodies. That they're not just some plaything that we can do whatever we want with. But they too are, are sacred because our bodies, people, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. This whole series has messed me up because of what I have to deal with within the culture of our church, what we have to deal with in the culture of the world around us. And as I said at the very beginning, this is not about a propositional truth statement and bludgeoning people. This is about loving our neighbors as ourselves. And how can we have a discussion in a loving manner from two separate viewpoints? And so sex is a gift from God, meant to carry out the purposes of God and to bring glory to God. Sex is not just a natural appetite that we may satisfy as we please, but rather sex is a good gift from God that is used uh, to be used only as he mandates. And sex is not merely an expression of affection, but it's an expression and it's actually a display of covenant love that's rooted in Jesus. Sex is not merely a means of fulfillment, but it's actually an opportunity to give ourselves to our spouse in love and to God in thanksgiving. It's ultimate purpose. When you think about it, the ultimate purpose of sex is not you and my own fulfillment. It's actually to bring glory to God in the way that he has created us to be. That's our groundwork. That's where I want you thinking when we come in for the next four weeks. Next week, we're going to be looking at sex gone wrong. I will probably have to wash my mouth out with soap next week, I'm presuming. I want to talk about what's happening in Gen Z. The newest generation that's being looked at, that's being analyzed. I want to talk about sex gone wrong. And I hope that this has created thoughts and questions and discussions. I hope that this, that you're challenged. And even if you're pissed off with me today, that's fine. I, that, I'm good with that. Just keep coming. And then eventually we can have that conversation. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your gift your gift of creation, your gift to us. 
that God, you have given us sex and you've called it good. That we are body, soul, and spirit. That we are one and that you have your hand upon us. And now I look at our world. I look at what we deal with. Lord, the, all the signals that we are seeing, all the words that are being thrown our way, all the, uh, how our society is being shaped. And I pray that you would just give us a clarity of mind and take us back to your roots. Take us back to who you are. And more importantly, Lord, through this whole process, challenge us spiritually. Challenge us spiritually. In your name I pray, amen. Stand with me. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for blessing those receiving a blessing did likewise. Here it is, soul. May you honor the way that God has created you. May you have a profound sense of respect for the fact that you are deeply spiritual and you're a mysterious being. And that love is ultimately a profoundly spiritual thing. Go, soul. Be at peace. Care for one another. Suffer with one another. Rejoice with one another. And give your attention to the word of God and proclaim the good news of Jesus for freedom and all. And may God delight your heart. May he sharpen your vision. May Christ Jesus keep you through thought and word and in his grace. And may the Holy Spirit be the fountain that sustains you all. Now go and live the church and we will see you next week. Bring a friend.